0: Welcome to Connected Philanthropy. In today's episode, we hear from funders across North America discuss how they can reduce applicant burden. This discussion comes from a recorded Coffee Talk webinar, and the first voice you'll hear is Susan Miller, who moderated the discussion. So without further ado, here's Susan.
1: So here's where we're going to kick off, given unprecedented challenges organizations and applicants are having to work even harder to serve their constituents and funders like you are asking how you can help by reducing applicant burden so we're going to talk about the whys and wherefores what's going on in your communities how can you help lighten applicants load when appropriate and what are some changes small or big that you've already made so what prompted you to consider reducing applicant burden COVID-19 obviously is a big Change maker in all of our communities right now. Uh, what how has that led you to take a closer look at your grant making practices? How, how has it affected the mindset of the organizations you often partner with in such a way that it's made you rethink things? So if anyone would like to jump in and start the conversation.
2: I'm with the Jacob and Therese Hershey Foundation in Houston. Can y'all hear me? Yep, we can. Great. Okay. So um, I started thinking about reducing applicant burden um, a few years ago, when we first started with Foundant. Um, just I had to think through what the um, application process was going to be like, and I wanted to, while maintaining what we'd had in the past, maybe alter it if, if, if I could. And then it's been a continual process, and, you know, Vuis blog has been an eye opener. Um, we've had a change in leadership and our new CEO came in and had ideas about how we could further reduce the burden. Um, so that's kind of our, our story. Um, I'd say I'm still looking at it. We haven't, it's, it's not a finished process. I'm every, every grant cycle I look and reevaluate and, and, think about how how can we make this even easier.
1: I love that. I love that you're continually taking a look at your cycles year after year and revising. Um, I think reflection is such an important part of all of our lives, all of the jobs that we do in our personal and private personal and public lives. Um and and one thing I heard from you, Deborah, is that going with foundant Changing how you put your applications out there is obviously a big uh, reason to take a look, and then also a change in leadership. Um, change in all ways will will be a great uh, uh, starter to start to start looking at that. Um, you mentioned a blog, and I missed that. Would you
3: mind saying what, what's that blog again that you mentioned?
2: V U L E. Okay.
3: Gosh, I can't remember the name of
2: his blog. I would just Google him. Yeah, he's he's kind of a leader in um, telling philanthropic organizations like it is from the applicant's perspective.
4: Um, fantastic. We're having people comment. It's nonprofit AF. There we go.
2: Thank you. Yes.
1: <laughs> I have. Uh, yes. Yeah, yes. I've definitely heard of that one. That That is fantastic. Fantastic. Um, I think we have oh go Pete ahead. Grant
2: make, Pete grant making also there's there there's a lot of conversation and you know is still occasionally about how to how to reduce that and there's a whole there's a whole initiative around that. It's got a name too that I don't remember. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I'll let everybody else fill that in. I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna mute myself now. Fantastic. Uh, did we have another hand
3: raised? The reason that we started considering uh, reducing the applicant burden was because we were not getting a very diverse uh, group of students who were applying for our scholarships. And we felt like we had to address this and make them more um, available or more convenient or whatever for um, every uh, student to be able to apply.
1: Wonderful. Janet, did you say where? what organization you're with?
3: Oh yeah, I did that when I was muted. Um, <laughs> I, I am from the Hancock County Community Foundation in uh, East Central Indiana. Wonderful. And then so
1: when you realized that you weren't getting a diverse pool of students, what did you do to start changing that?
3: Well, for one thing, we, um, we took out any extra letters of recommendation requirements um, because uh, this seemed to be hanging students up, and there were also times when the letters weren't being submitted in time and that thus um, disqualifying the students from the scholarships. Um, We switched to the um, UA so that they only had to submit information once and it automatically is sending them to the scholarship applications that they qualify for Mm -hmm. and um, we're providing FAFSA workshops. We've done this for a long time at each of the schools because we do ask for FAFSA information for scholarships that are based on financial need. So we're helping them to get that done in a a, uh, quick fashion. Um, Wonderful. So those are the main things I think that we've done so far that we would like to make it even easier.
1: That's great. We're hearing a lot of trends towards eliminating that third party um, letter of recommendation especially on scholarship applications as that being kind of a blocker for a lot of students. So um, interesting to hear that you are in that same, in that same world. Um, is anyone having conversations with their partner nonprofits or, or the students if you're, if you're a scholarship provider? Um, in your communities.
5: My name is Maximilian Eiley. I'm with the Gifford Foundation. We're a small foundation in Syracuse, New York. And we've actually been addressing both the applicant burden issue as well as uh, trying to have more conversations with uh, all in one with a new approach that we're taking with our follow-ups process. We recently did a big review of our follow-up reporting process on grants and found that Um, It was really easy for the written reports we've been receiving to pile up. We found that we often had to reach out to applicants with more questions after we got them. And we also found that applicants loved hearing from us uh, when we Mm -hmm. did that. So we are now exploring a new approach where instead of having them submit a written report, we have them set up an interview and we ask many of the same questions, but we are doing it over Zoom or in person and then we can write up our own summary after the fact. So it allows us to tailor the conversation to their specific projects, have more conversations, and uh, stay on top of it better. I love that.
1: And of course, as a proponent for Foundant, I I love the option that you have to sort of fill out their follow-up form, turn their follow-up form into a, a report that you're filling out as you have that live conversation with them, whether on Zoom or on the phone or what have you. It gives you both that Record storage, but also the personal interaction with the applicants there. That's fantastic.
5: Yeah, found it's made it very easy. And so far, the feedback has been very positive from Grant. Love
1: that. I love that. Thank you so much, Max. Sure. Anyone else?
6: Hi, um, I'm with Jefferson Community Foundation in Washington State. Um, You know, I think that for us really um, look at I'm the development manager there Um, looking at some of our reducing applicant burden really came with our commitment to um, racial justice and you know our organization has. Um, hired a consulting company, a a BIPOC consulting company, to help us look over our application process and just to make sure with a real eye on equity. And I think for us, that's really been our commitment to reducing burden for applicants is an eye on equity. And um, some of our, our president and our nonprofit liaison even took a racial justice literacy Um, 16 week course offered by a local woman in our area. And I think really um, looking at the ways in which white supremacy impacts the granting process has been really instrumental in the ways that we're looking at making changes. Um, And I think that for us really grounding ourselves in that commitment to equity um, before we can even jump in and make huge changes has been important. Not that we're stagnant, but I think that really understanding why equitable changes and grant processes need to be made is has really driven us.
1: That's fantastic. Fantastic, which kind of leads us to our next um, question with what's required to make these changes. And you kind of lead us there a little bit, Ash, is like a, a deeper look into the, all the factors, internal and external, in your community. Um, what systemic issues are going on in the world or in your locality? Um, do you need to have conversations with your staff or board? Can you just do this on your own? Um, I'm sure that that some of these questions are overwhelming in some ways and and kind of bigger than all of us. And but but you have to start somewhere, right? So um, what else does anyone else have any thoughts on on what, you know, you can you can change a question on your application pretty easily, but what's the thought process and what's the, the smaller macro and micro ways that you are looking into this?
7: We really were intentional starting about um, three or four years ago to turn scholarships in particular, so I manage scholarships and grants, um, to turn scholarships from a kind of very siloed donor product. To something that was really integrated with our work. So our scholarships are integrated now with our education and youth program, which includes our grants and our scholarships. Um, and there was a lot of work to get buy-in from staff. In particular, the board was pretty much on board once we presented it um, eventually. But a lot of that involved bringing in individual students, telling students stories, really making our staff and some of our donors as well understand that you know, students aren't their traditional graduated 18, have their parents support, move into four-year college kind of folks anymore. But a lot of students are struggling with housing insecurity and food insecurity even before COVID. Um, but just presenting that that student picture. So we did um, pre-COVID, a, um, uh, I, I'll call it a field trip, but an event at one of our community colleges where we toured the food pantry there. And we had students talk about, you know, emergency assistance and how important that was. And that really set us up to make changes when we wanted to. We updated our scholarship policy um, to to make everything cost of attendance and to remove citizenship requirements. Um, I'm happy to share a copy of that if folks are thinking along those lines. Um, We looked at our application. In our application, we realized we asked for a lot of things we didn't need to make decisions like um, requiring students to upload tax forms. So we moved to a trust-based application system where students input financial information, but we do not require any verification from them. We trust them to be telling us the truth. Um, and that really set us up also in COVID to very quickly um, launch a student emergency assistance fund for our scholars, where we provide um, non-tuition assistance for housing and food. And um, that, that those changes and kind of making everything student-centric made it easy for us to present that to the board and then to understand it is an immediate need and to approve it immediately. So just really focusing on students um, and involving their voices. We have a scholarship recipient advisory committee. Um, My grant advisory committee is actually two-thirds students. Um, So just really incorporating their voices and making sure that they're part of the process.
1: Nice. I have a couple of questions for you. So um, you mentioned talking to students where are you finding the students? Are they, are they ones that have previously received your scholarships or are you reaching out further than your immediate community?
7: So we have about 250 to 300 active scholars at any point. So mostly we do lean on our current scholars. Um, we survey students annually. So at one year after their award or the year after they're awarded and then three years out to really see the impact those scholarships have had. Um, and we're on our fourth year. We just finished our fourth um, survey. So we do have some longitudinal data there. Um, we have the scholarship recipient advisory committee, which is about four to five current scholars, and we really do lean on them to um, when we have specific questions about the application or you know things are coming up. Um, we look at you know student semester reports. Um, we added some COVID questions in recently. Um, actually, it's been probably about a year ago now. It's been I think three cycles, and we look at those and. Um, you know, surveys, and we do have a scholarships intern who is a current student, so we lean on them as well to help us understand what being a college student is like.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. And then uh, my second is more of a comment, not a question, but I, I find it uh, lovely and interesting that you refer to sort of trust-based um, process with your students, which is something we definitely are hearing as a hot topic in the grant-making world, but as in terms of scholarships, you know, it's such a, you're in, you're out, you know, it's hard to build those long-term relationships. So it's, it's great to hear that you're using sort of a trust-based approach with students as well. Fantastic. Um, any other hands?
4: I'm with the VEACH program. Uh, and uh, we are, we're, we're consistently uh, trying to figure out how to uh, reduce burden applicants uh, for our grants. Uh, many of which are, are um, renewal general operating support grants. Uh, The nitty gritty that we just did uh, this past year was um, printed out all of the questions and put them in an Excel sheet and had um, our program officers who are the ones that are using this information the most um, rank each question on a scale of one to three um, for how, how much work is this for the applicant? How much how important is this information for our internal processes, and how important is this information for our board members? And that was a really helpful way to to see where where there is different of opinions, but also like very clearly, these are the questions that we can eliminate. there are there are a lot of work for applicants. We're not getting much information out of them. so um, we're still working on it, but I thought as a sort of nitty gritty uh, <laughs> process that that was one that really helped us get the ball rolling.
1: Sounds. I love that. I love that. Um, I mean, and how often do we do that kind of really deep dive reflective work to say, you know, sometimes we're so used to asking the same thing. It's, we are doing it because we've always done it right. You know, why, why change now, but to actually take a look with a fresh perspective, fresh eyes and to say, do we really need this information? And, um, and what's the, what's the burden on the applicant to be asking this? Fantastic.
8: Anyone else have any thoughts on that? Yes, hi. Uh, this is me, Pallavi Bharadwaj. And I'm the program manager for the GWB, Geoscientists Without Borders program. So um, for us, um, it's also a beginning process because we are also new. And we do very technical and science-based applications because it's geosciences. So mostly applicants are geoscientists or postdocs and all those uh, in the same job profile who are our applicants. So uh, thinking that how can we reduce the burden of applicants, we had an advisory task force formed, which was tasked with doing other things. But at the same time, this was also one of their their agenda items to discuss on. And uh, one of the items that came out is they suggested that first of all, we should try and reduce the burden in terms of our LOIs and full proposals forms. So okay. we're trying to do a template in Foundant again, uh, try to do it pretty lean now from what it is. So our committee chair and our committee members are all weighing in and trying to refine it as much as to fit it into maybe two, three pages for the applicants instead of the 12, 15 pages that they have to submit right now. And doing the same thing with follow-ups, doing the same thing with progress reports, with whatever is possible to automate it and send it in Foundant and not do anything with attachments and other things. And uh, another thing that came out of advisory Task Force's recommendation was that they are trying to um, also do video-based. Some uh, colleagues have already shared some kind of video based maybe application process if they can submit a short video of maybe two to three minutes saying what they feel strongly about the project and then same with the follow-up reports if they can submit a short video instead of too much writing involved. So those are the kinds of uh, uh, those are the kinds of suggestions that we are trying to incorporate um, in the new year for our applicants.
1: Wonderful. And uh, hopefully without putting you too much on the spot here, what kinds of questions have you decided could go by the wayside if you've come to those conclusions already? What what kinds that are absolutely necessary and what's what's maybe not so necessary?
8: Yeah, um, so the committee chair is very uh, very careful about asking them as little information as possible to validate. So making all the information from basic information of asking them about their names, organization profile, just quickly putting in URLs if they can in the space and sending other items as, as attachments if possible, like CVs or something like they need a technical report because it's a technical grant that's being made. So they definitely need to make sure that their technical report is foolproof. So those are the questions that are there, but in the new form that it looks, it won't be more than two three pages for the applicants um, as we see it.
1: Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're very
8: welcome. It's my pleasure.
1: Yeah. And um, sounds like you have a wonderful helper with you there today, too. <laughs>
8: <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's juggling homeschooling and everything. Yes.
1: Uh, well, and, and a great reason to reduce app. We're all sort of under, under a lot of extra stresses right now. Um, in some ways, reducing applicant burden may actually reduce your own burden Mm -hmm. and reviewing all of those questions. Um, What other changes are being made? What are some small ones? What are some really big ones? Has anyone been doing this already for a year and has some results they'd like to share?
9: Hi, this is Lori. I'm with Osherman Family Foundation. Hi, Lori. Hi. So uh, I was gonna mention two things if that's okay. Uh, The first one is, and most people probably know about this because I'm aware that there seem to be a lot of Vule fans out there, Um, but there is a website uh, called grantadvisor.org that I think has been a little slower to take off than I would have expected. And I've seen a lot of chats going on about trying to get applicant feedback, grantee feedback. and. Grant advisor is basically a Yelp for foundations to help nonprofits know um, what approach they can take when asking particular funders uh, for grants. So, if <laughs> if everyone out there, I think, would spread the word a little bit more about Grant Advisor, uh, I think we'd get some good feedback or more good feedback about what the pain points are. And um, I also wanted to share. Um, I'm still on the last topic, so I'm sorry, but not so much oh, about no, what Oh, no, that's we're going quite, to all right. do, but, quite all right. <laughs> um, so, one of the things that we did in 2020 is a group of us in our community that all use found in um, worked together to do COVID funding as a collaborative approach, and our community foundation took on the bulk of the burden of that by having the applications go through them. Um, but, and it had a lot of positives, and we were able to get a a lot of money out the door for basic human needs. Um, but our, our pie in the sky, what we'd really like to do eventually is to actually have truly collaborative grant making where um, the nonprofits that we all sub- tend to support could just submit one application and it would be somehow um, through founded or some other method uh, distributed to all of us so that we could say how much of the pie we were gonna to handle as our piece of it.
1: Yes, and that is a, that is a great big picture idea that I think um, does require some collaboration on the part of companies like ours to like Found It and other, other grant companies to figure out how in the world we could do that. But, um, but definitely that's, that's, that was a topic in that TAG um, webinar uh, that wouldn't that be wonderful. Um, Regarding grantadvisor.org, just a small tip for anyone who wants to link to them as perhaps like the last question and instruction field on your application, you can can always uh, put your link for your foundation from grantadvisor.org as the last question on your application and invite applicants to go and anonymously review your process and you know, it just, just depends, like make sure they know it's totally anonymous because I can tell you as a former applicant, you don't ever want to say anything that makes your uh, funder feel like you don't absolutely appreciate everything they're doing because, you know, as an applicant, we look to the funders as the ones who hold all the power. So um, to make sure they know it's completely anonymous, but maybe you'll start to be able to get that, that feedback in there. Um, any other hands?
7: Hi, um, this is Sarah again from Triangle Community Foundation, um, as well as Julia. So um, something we're doing right now, as Julia mentioned, we have two open grant cycles. Something we're piloting is instead of um, instituting metrics, so in our grant reports, telling nonprofits what they need to report on the application, we ask for up to three, at least one, but up to three metrics that they will be measuring related to the work they're applying for. And then, um, so both of these grants are two-year grants. So there'll be an interim report and a final report and then asking them to report on how they've done with their own established metrics. And, and knowing that things could change and they might end up using different metrics, but just allowing them to set their own, which is something that we really heard when we were building these programs that nonprofits wanted, not to impose our own metrics on them, but ask what they're already measuring.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. And that's of course, really reportable and found it too, which is helps you out in the long run
10: I'm with the Sally Mead Hans Foundation. And um, one of the things that we've been doing is, you know, we have the LOI uh, stage and we have the application stage. And if we have applicants and we we don't take unsolicited applications. So if we have applicants that um, are asking for the same project year after year, Um, you know, we oftentimes give them a multi-year grant so that they don't have to apply for the same project multiple times. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that we do, if, um, you know, we don't know from year to year if they are going to apply for the same project, but if they do, and, you know, we see it come in on the LOI, uh, we make a much simpler application form so that they don't have, you know, they can provide us some financial information, but they don't have to answer a lot of the text questions.
1: Wonderful. Yes, and that that kind of um, dovetails into the idea of, quote unquote, right sizing your application. This is one of the ideas from grantadvisor.org that um, it's a little bit different than what you were just saying. But if you have, say, a small award, for maybe a smaller organization with a smaller budget, you know, maybe not making them jump through quite as many hoops as the really large, you know, five million dollar budget nonprofit who ha- who's asking for a hundred thousand dollar grant. You know, obviously there's a lot. Uh, they they've got a lot more staff. They've got more capacity to really um, jump through those hoops there. So, uh, right sizing your application is another idea.
7: Um, Yeah, and I'm happy to just um, briefly share a little bit that we realized a few years ago that our committees were really getting in the weeds and financials, and that is not why we have convened them. Um, So when we launched, we launched some kind of revamped programs last year, and something that we did, so we get a pretty high number of applications based, you know, um, comparison to how many we can grant. So I'm expecting 100 to 150 applicants, and I can award about 20 so what we've instituted is an internal review where our staff will use, we, we publish the um, review criteria that we're looking at, and we try to make it as transparent as possible, but our staff will do an internal review first and determine um, not only if applicants are a good fit for the program, but also identify any of those financial red flags. So it's our staff that's focusing on that. And then when it gets to the committee level, sometimes there is conversations about big financial things, Um, And we do try to um, put the finances in there really just to make sure our grantee pool is equitable in terms of number of small organizations versus number of large ones, Um, but really enforcing that their role is not to debate um, finances, that their role is really to look at applicants in terms of overall program goals. Um, And I think I mentioned earlier that two-thirds of my committee are current students, so really drawing on their expertise um, focused on youth leadership, which is what my grant program is focused on. And not, not financials, that we've identified any big red flags and um, have addressed those and that their role is really to look at things from a program lens.
1: Wonderful. Yes, and that, that's a big win is to, you know, ask yourselves, what can the staff take off the reviewer's shoulders? What what questions can you answer for the reviewers and, and not even have them, review you know, financials can, you can get really into the weeds there with that. I think we have some more hands. Um, anyone else would like to speak to that?
0: James Patterson, Community Foundation in Northern Illinois and, you know, I guess I've always looked at uh, application really as a, it's a compromise really between what the reviewers feel they need and then what the uh, applicant has to provide and so. You know, we always ask the question um, when we revamp the application, which we've done periodically. It's just, do we really need this information for pretty much every question? So, mm-hmm. um, the ones that we have on there, we really feel like we do need. And then there are times, and looking at the financial information specifically, uh, kind of to Sarah's point, when it comes to the, the organizational financials, we don't really stress for them to, the, the reviewers, to look at that data. Um, it's more the budget for the actual program or project or event or uh, whatever they're, they're applying for. And um, the reviewers, I, they would not do well without reviewing the budget because there's so much you learn from the budget. You, know, you learn exactly what's being um, you know, paid for, what the dollars are actually going for. So mm-hmm. I can't imagine them ever letting go of that piece. And I'm not sure they should. Um, so in in the case of the budget sheet, we've kind of said, okay, the reviewers sort of win this one, you know, but that's not to say that there aren't a lot of situations where we've trimmed things down to make it much easier on, uh, the applicants in many ways too. So, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is I always feel like it's a, it's a real compromise between what they both need. As far as staff goes, I mean, we can go either way. Right. So, um, but yeah, that's the way we look at it.
1: For sure. I mean, obviously, there's always going to be things that you absolutely need to know you can't uh, grant in thin air. So um, it it is definitely a a reflection process with yourself and your staff and your board. Like, what do we need to know and and what can we let go?
11: I'm Lindsay. I'm from the Community Foundation of McHenry County in Illinois. Um, We previously were under a larger organization, and so now we have the freedom to kind of update our processes one because we have found it and two now we don't have this criteria that's already in place for us Mm -hmm. um so we're kind of moving towards i know a lot of um organizations are doing the general operating and we're doing project and general operating so and i kind of saw that in the chat that some people are saying well if we don't have project-based grants than what financial information is provided. So I'm just curious from like a Foundant perspective, how people are kind of handling a grant cycle if they are allowing the projects and general operating, because we're finding that problem with the financials and it's just making things really tricky. So it's almost like getting to the point where we may have to do a lot of branching, but I'm curious to know how everyone is kind of handling kind of scaling those applications for grantees to allow them to apply for both um, project and general operating.
1: Do you mean to apply for both project and general operating within the same grant yeah. cycle? The grant oh okay in anyone-
11: foundant. It. So it's like we have one standard application and they can apply for either. Um, using the same application, but it's like, oh, well, should we maybe be having only a project-based application and a general operating separate? Because right now we're using the same application. So I'm curious. And then, you know, that affects their budget information they're submitting. So we're kind of trying to work through that. And I'm just curious if other foundations are handling it that way, allowing applicants to choose how they want to apply, but then how does that, you know, affect their application?
1: Sure, I see. Um, we've got a couple hands that I think may want to respond to your question there.
0: Yeah, James Patterson with Community Foundation, Northern Illinois again, and just uh, as a response and how to use the application, we don't we don't do operating support specifically, but we have different types of support that we offer. So maybe for an event or for a pro- program or for a project, each of those, or or actually just for consumables too, um, each of those. Um, sort of require different information or different types of questions. So we use the branching functionality um, quite liberally to really be able to ask just the questions that we need for those specific support types. And in that way, I think it keeps the questions down uh, for them. And and we do the same thing, actually, in terms of right-sizing the application um, with regard to financial information. So if they're requesting, you know, less than, I think it's like 10,000 or something like that, um, if, if they're requesting less than that, then they don't have to provide as much financial information backup. So, um, but we do a number of those things with the branching capabilities, which has been really helpful.
1: Fantastic. Um, well, we are getting close to the end here. I just want to say thank you so much, everyone, for your participation today. Uh, thank you, Brittany, for organizing. Thank you, Ricca, for co-hosting here. Um, The conversation has been fantastic. Obviously, this is a super hot topic. We're really glad you joined us today. And everyone have a wonderful day.
0: So that was our conversation. New episodes of Connected Philanthropy release every other Monday. So make sure you subscribe if you'd like to hear more conversations like this. Connect directly with other members of the philanthropic community by joining community, .foundant.com From all of us here at Foundant, thanks for connecting.